This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the only lesbian who doesn't like sports, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Some of you may be new to the show because you heard me on the Bill Simmons podcast recently. If that's you, then Welcome. Every week, we talk to the most interesting CEOs, politicians, journalists, entertainers, and more about their big ideas and how they're changing our world. We've curated some of our favorite episodes to help you get started. Just tap the link in the show notes and start listening to an episode that interests you. But today in the red chair is Larry Diamond, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor at Stanford University. He's also the author of a new book called Ill Winds, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. Larry, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you for having me, um, Karen. So I love the Russian rage. It's exactly right. Chinese ambition, American complacency. Let's talk a little bit about your background, how you got to covering this very serious and uh, problematic topic. And it's been one for several years. But um, yesterday, the Mueller hearings were very clearly, he talked about this is a big problem going forward, whatever has happened previously. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your background. How did you get to discussing this topic? Well, Kara, uh, I've been studying the development and failure of democracies for 40 yes, years. Yes, you have. Uh, I've been looking at how democracies struggle to uh, emerge and improve and avoid failing in Africa, Asia, uh, to some extent Latin America. Uh, I spent three months in Iraq uh, after the invasion trying to uh, do what could be done to uh, help the Iraqi people in that ill-fated situation. I never dreamed I'd have to worry about defending liberal democracy in the United States right. or that it would be at risk within the European Union. But the growing evidence that that was the case and that we were descending into something very deep and dangerous in terms of the trends for freedom in the world. That's what motivated me to write so the book. What's interesting is, you know, after the Soviet Union fell, everyone thought the very opposite would take effect. And it actually happened right around the same time the Internet grew. Kind of, it was all around the same mm -hmm. time frame. Because I remember traveling to the former Soviet Union then and using very early digital communications tools, and, and they that, that was where they began to spread. Um, I want to link those two. I, I talk more about technology, but can you sort of set the table after that happened? I think most people felt that democracy was on the rise. You had Prague, you had Prague Spring, you had all these different governments that were now out from under authoritarian regimes. You had China opening up. So democracy was on the rise 
for a great stretch, a um, really 40-year period beginning in the mid-1970s when it was very gradual uh, with the re-democratization in Latin America and Southern Europe. And then you remember the People Power Revolution sure. in the Philippines in 1986. Or Right, which and all of that, of course, is a, a, a unraveling now under mm -hmm. a real uh, authoritarian personality, Rodrigo Duterte as president. And then, of course, the big bang of democratic uh, expansion after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union. And let's not uh, ignore the uh, exhilarating changes in sub-Saharan Africa and South Africa, and other parts of the African continent. And it all looked like freedom was just going to continue to be on the march. But this trend of democratic expansion began to turn down and first stagnate and then uh, accelerate in its retreat um, after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, uh, the U.S.-induced financial crisis, that almost brought about a second Great Depression. And just the acceleration of globalization and fee uh, lots of people feeling like they were falling behind. So um, for the last 12 years, freedom has been trending in a downward direction. Mm -hmm. I do want to say something, Kara, about the technology mm -hmm. uh, aspect because I founded a program at Stanford called Liberation Technology mm -hmm. to study what were very exhilarating uses yep. of technology to empower people. That's right. That was the idea at the beginning. Yeah, to enable change and really to promote liberation all the way from the empowerment of grassroots action in the United States in the Howard Dean and Barack Obama campaigns, uh, the mobilization of protest and political innovation in both advanced and emerging democracies, and many of the new people power movements, including the Arab Spring movements, mm -hmm. all of which were using digital tools to mobilize protest. And what's happened, and I think has greatly deepened the retreat of freedom in the world and the downward trend has been authoritarian regimes figuring out the code, if you will, mm -hmm. and turning these tools in on themselves into mechanisms of surveillance and repression. A hundred percent. I always say, someone was talking about internet and uh, dictators don't like the internet. I go, dictators love the internet. What are you talking about? It's a, it's an ability. You can control it in ways that are, and you can abuse it and use it in ways. If you've got the tools and that's the right. understanding. That's right. Understand. That's what Increasingly, China has the tools mm -hmm. and is willing to share them and the understanding. Right, exactly. And so when you begin to see this, your book is called Ill Wins, and you want to say saving democracy. Let's go through, why did you call it that? I just want to get a sense of the idea is these are blowing in and it's bad news. Well, there are four ill winds that have been blowing now and that I think are accelerating. The first is the general march of authoritarian populism in Europe and now, uh, unfortunately, the United States, uh, under pressure from globalization, the cynicism-promoting features of social media. The second is Russia— trying to make hay of this um, and uh, intervene in the politics of European democracies 
intervene in the politics of our electoral democracy, promote confusion, promote division. We know they did this in 2016 and even try and tip the election to their favored candidates, in this case, Donald Trump. The third <clears throat> ill wind is China emerging as a superpower, wanting to control the narrative and co-op people and preempt any criticism of it. And the fourth is the growing polarization and dysfunction of democracy in the United States and then the new context of an authoritarian personality in the White House and complacency everywhere. Right, there's nothing in low t voter turnout, in people thinking that it's just one more increment, there's nothing special about it. And of course, complacency in the Republican Party just rolling back and letting this happen. Right. So let's get to each of these things because the first part I think is the, um, as this authoritarian populism moves into place uh, combined with cynicism of people. Talk a little bit about that to begin. Well, we've seen a rise in a number of European democracies. Even Sweden, we think of Sweden right. <laughs> as such a liberal democracy. Right. But the third largest political party in Sweden now is something called the Sweden Democrats, mm -hmm. which is a right-wing, anti-immigrant, nativist party that says, please don't bring your Muslims and your, if I can put it crudely, your brown-skinned mm -hmm. people here right. to white Sweden. We now have a political party in Germany that I think it's an overstatement to say it's a neo-Nazi party, but there are, are neo-Nazis in it. It's mm -hmm. called Alternative for Germany. Right. And in the last German elections, they became the third largest party. So we've right. seen... Passing the Greens, right? Yeah. And with Marine Le Pen and mm -hmm. the National Front in France, with uh, Matteo Salvini and his remarkable electoral uh, success in... Uh, the last Italian elections and now in the European Parliament elections is probably the most dynamic and influential party in uh, Italy. And again, he's not a fascist, but he's had awfully admiring things to say sure. about Benito Mussolini, and he hates immigrants. Mm -hmm. And you look at one European country after another, and you see partly as a backlash against what they see as a crisis of immigration. And there certainly was, were elements of a crisis with the flood of Syrian uh, refugee sure. immigration in 2016. These parties are gaining, and they are playing on other dimensions of the unease that important segments of the democratic public have about inequality, about the failure to keep up with globalization, about feeling like they're losing out in this global economic competition, worrying about whether they're going to have jobs. Many of the things that uh, drove support for Donald Trump in the United mm -hmm. States, men feeling like they're losing their status in the uh, sexual revolution and the uh, gender revolution of women's advancement, Gay rights, minority rights, you know, everything. A lot of established, older, and more rural populations are having trouble assimilating all this and feel like they are the last minority left that isn't being listened to 
or isn't being given some help uh, in this competition. So there's that. This is the first part, which I think is the most critical part, is this shift because of things that are reasonable to be worried about in terms of especially income inequality and feeling like your job is at risk and everywhere in the world. that the, it, it, Probably most fueled by this immigration issue, these immigration problems that are throughout the world. It's been the hottest button, mm -hmm. and it's been the most powerful trigger uh, in both continental Europe and, of course, the United Kingdom with the Brexit movement right. and now the election of Boris, uh, of Boris Johnson or the rise of Boris Johnson as Trump-like a figure as there is in the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. even looks a little like Donald yeah. Trump, yeah. Uh, to become the new prime minister of the United Kingdom. There's a lot of similarity between what's going on in Europe and this constituency and this um, melange of frustrations in the United States. And yes, immigration is a very powerful trigger, but I think it's very important that we not ignore the deeper set of anxieties and frustrations that's driving this. And that we recall uh, how important general feelings of identity threat and identity resentment are. I think an important reason why Hillary Clinton did not win the Electoral College, I'm reluctant to say did not win the election, mm -hmm. um, but an important reason why she lost the Electoral College uh, and narrowly lost the vote in many of these heartland states of Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and so on, is that there's a large segment of rural and suburban and exurban voters in traditional occupations, in farming, in manufacturing, and so on, and even some in, in the more um, kind of modern edge uh, globalized corporations and elements of the economy who feel disrespected by the so-called knowledge elite, feel mm -hmm. demeaned and uh, feel like they don't matter anymore. They're looked down upon. And that sense is really driving a lot of this political backlash. That continues, that continues. Oh, I think there's no doubt that it, it, it continues. It seems endless at some point. And it continues to be fueled by the way media continues to do that, the twitchy culture. Yeah, and our uh, segmentation into completely different media spheres, completely mm -hmm. different social spheres, and different social media spheres, so we're not talking to one another. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, if I can just bring it forward to mm -hmm. 2020, if the Democrats don't find a candidate who can transcend some of that and reach out to these people and draw some of them back into the Democratic Party, there's a really good chance Donald Trump is going to be elected again in 2020. Right. Absolutely. I agree with you. All right. We're here with Larry Diamond. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and also a professor at Stanford University. His new book is called Ill Winds, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition and American Complacency. When we get back, we're going to talk about Russian rage and Chinese ambition, which is quite large. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? 
State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. We're here with Larry Diamond from Stanford University. His book is called Ill Winds, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. We've been talking about uh, the move towards authoritarian populism and and people feeling left out, everybody feeling sort of angry about something, um, often related to immigration, uh, identity politics, all kinds of things. But there's a lot of outward uh, forces here. Um, let's start with Russia, because I was at this security conference and it was really interesting, Russia and China. Um, they were talking about Russians as almost as if they were mobsters, like that they had lost the lost the Cold War on a, from a military perspective and economic perspective. And here was a cyber attacks and these kind of things was, were the way in in order to try to promote these promote the, the the things they had lost previously. They pulled the Chinese out in a very different way and saw it saw Russia as the short term threat to create discord and China as the long term threat with their ambitions all over the world with using tools, using all kinds of economic uh, empowerment uh, of areas. Talk about what you mean by Russian rage and Chinese ambition. Okay. And I think the distinction you introduced and that dominated the Aspen conference Mm -hmm. is exactly the right one. And it's Mm -hmm. the one that um, I build upon in the Mm -hmm. book. Russia is a fallen superpower. Mm -hmm. And that's very hard for people in a country to go from being one of the two most important countries in the world to being a kind of afterthought or also ran. This is hard for the Russian elites who were used to thinking of themselves as a major player in the world, uh, highly relevant, and as a domineering force certainly within their uh, geographic um, space, which at a minimum would include the whole former Soviet Union, but of course Europe uh, and the Middle East as well. And it's hard for the people who not only saw their economy shrink much more dramatically and for much longer than happened in the Great Depression in the United States, but also feel as Russians that they're no longer people in the world who are looked up to or considered highly successful. Right, and also a long history of xenophobia, of nationalism. And and there's that, and intolerance and authoritarianism. So I think there is rage in Russia at both the elite level and frustration and, if you will, rage that can be mobilized at the broader national level, which is why Putin continues to be a substantially popular person, though with much more resentment against him than is sometimes uh, acknowledged. We just saw that, little glimpses of that the other day. I forget, and there were some protests. In Moscow, yeah. yeah, over the effort to prevent any serious opposition candidate from running mm-hmm. in the Moscow city council elections. So the Russian rage is part of an effort 
to make Russia great again, right. to make Russia powerful again, to make Russia listened to again, and to give Russia significant geopolitical control and resources and leverage again. Mm-hmm. And we see this in many ways. One thing they don't want is to be constrained by sanctions. Mm-hmm. And so any effort of Europe and the United States to sanction them for their bad, authoritarian, and geopolitically irresponsible behavior has to be a very high target of um, pressure on their part. And so a big part of their strategy is to try to defeat and delegitimize the political actors and parties in Europe and the United States that would try and limit uh, the Kremlin's efforts to exercise inappropriate influence and control and restore some of the old Soviet ways to Russia's um, presence and posture uh, in the world. And that meant going after Hillary Clinton. That meant uh, going after some of the liberal and centrist and Christian democratic and social democratic political forces in continental Europe and lifting up alternatives that were essentially pro-Russian and shared Vladimir Putin's extremely illiberal, uh, anti-Muslim and, you know, anti Uh, equality in a way, social equality view of the world. Now, the way they did this, first in Brexit and in continental Europe, before they rolled this out in a highly visible way in the United States in the 2016 election, was through social media penetration. And all of the masquerading Uh, as American actors in our social media debates and purchase of Facebook and other social media ads that uh, Robert Mueller has documented and others have documented uh, were done in the U.S. election campaign and that we know were done, by the way, in the Brexit campaign. Yeah, they were the test test. tests. Well, they Uh, tested other places, and then uh, Brexit was the big test. And uh, one of the most important right-wing illiberal leaders in Europe, Marine Le Pen, who— wound up being in the final round uh, of contention for the French presidency in 2016, has admitted that she she received a very large loan from Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. So he is deeply, deeply intervening in the politics and in the media and, of course, again, the social media of Western democracies trying to confuse and divide them, trying to challenge the notion that there is any objective truth and trying to aid his natural political allies who are, if I can put it, uh, you know, cryptically, Steve Bannon and everybody who uh, uh, thinks like him. Right. Uh, And they've had a lot of success, and they've learned a lot Mm -hmm. from their initial forays into our society and our our political and social debates. And they're coming back to do it with greater sophistication, greater masking of what they're doing uh, so that we can't— it won't be as easy to call it out this time. Well, I I always say it's um, one of the things about the Russian incursion, say, into Facebook, for example, is you'll never figure it out. And it'll be so confusing that you'll doubt it. You you just don't know where it— where it hit you or where it affected you or where it right. had its point. That's the point of and it. And you throw a lot of darts on the board yeah. and they don't all have to land, right. you know. Uh, right. So you try a number of different things. Mm-hmm. But we need to ramp up our defense of this 
uh, both as social media companies and as uh, the United States federal and the 50 state governments very rapidly. And I think we know what they're doing now. We know what their goals and objectives are. We know at least what some of their techniques are. What is inexplicable is that the Senate Majority Leader of the United States, Mitch McConnell, is holding up legislation that is widely regarded by experts as necessary to secure our electoral infrastructure for 2020, knowing the kinds of things that the Russians did, knowing the capabilities that they have, knowing that they were in the voter registration databases of 20 American states in 2016. And uh, it almost certainly would pass the United States Senate if, if it got to the floor. Why is Mitch McConnell trying to block the United States from being more secure in its electoral administration and infrastructure? Because if he loses, they could say it's not secure. And if he wins, it's like, well, it was fine. Like, it wasn't a problem. That's, that, to me, is the, the most cynical reading of it. Well, I think that is essentially it. And I would just put the cherry on the mm -hmm. top of your Sunday mm -hmm. and, and say, tragically, I think the only explanation that can really survive close scrutiny is that many Republicans, including the Senate Majority Leader, must think, hey, this is going to help us. Mm -hmm. Why stand in the way of it? Right, right. And when you think that that amounts to an invitation, which Trump has kind of tongue-in-cheek given to the Russian leader mm -hmm. to intervene all over again in our election in 2020, mm -hmm. to have a foreign adversary and one of the greatest threats to U.S. and European national security have a clear and unobstructed path to intervene in our election, I think is pretty close to treason. Mm -hmm. That's what many people think. So what happens with the the Russian rage? What where Where's the end point of it? Well, I think the end point is, will be a growing realization that the emperor Vladimir Putin and his corrupt oligarchical network around him, that they really wear no clothes. Mm -hmm. uh, they are frauds in terms of what they're offering Russian society. People's lives aren't getting uh, measurably better as a result. And that there is an alternative, more modern, responsible, um, transparent, uh, and promising and innovative pathway for Russia to apply. Kara, just think what this country could do mm -hmm. if they took all the digital skills that mm -hmm. they are using in the Internet Research Agency in, in St. Petersburg and elsewhere to try and pervert and subvert and confuse American and European democracy and created a Silicon Valley in St. Petersburg or Moscow or whatever to compete in positive ways in oh, the Larry, global economy. Oh, Larry, they're troublemakers. They've always been troublemakers. <laughs> you know that. Um, I think that there's great potential sure. for Russia with its scientific and technical Agreed. and computer science talent to compete in a serious and non-criminal way right. in the new global economy. So I think where this is going to end is that someday a growing proportion of Russians are going to figure this out right. and say, we want a better, 
more genuine and more sustainable path to prosperity. Than just making trouble. I just want to add. Just cheating. Just yes, cheating. Yes. I just want to add, until then, we have to be careful. And this is an injunction that I think applies both to our relations with Russia mm -hmm. and to our relations with China. If we frame and pitch the response, uh, which has to be a competitive response, it has to be a pushback, as a pushback on Russian society, on Russian people, and then by the same logic, the mm -hmm. Chinese society and the Chinese people, that this is a civilizational struggle, we're going to rally these two adversarial countries in a way, we'll rally their people around their leadership. Mm -hmm. We'll make things worse and we'll be at risk of sliding into a new Cold War. Mm -hmm. And that's why in our messaging, in our outreach, in our engagement, in our framing, we have to look for ways to separate the leaders from the people and to show not as an exercise in similarly cynical mischief, to what Putin is doing in the United States, but as a matter of forthright, transparent analysis, that what these leaders are doing is, first of all, criminal corruption in terms of mm -hmm. ripping off their societies, and second of all, not in the long-run interest of their people. Right, absolutely. So talk a little bit about China, though, because it's a very different situation. I, I consider this—I do consider this the new Cold War. We're already in it. I don't think—I think we're in it, and it it's a digital Cold War, essentially, and it's a lot easier to do it from where—from the Internet Research Agency in uh, St. Petersburg than it is to have troops all over the world. It's just a—it's a much more effective use of money. Um, but China's different. Uh, because I think there's a lot of innovation going on in China. There's a lot of really interesting companies. You have a government that completely backs, you know, education companies. Uh, they have a plan. It's a much different approach. And I think most people feel like China is the real, is where the real game is happening. Right. Uh, I think anyone who is focused on the long run of U.S. national security mm -hmm. or U.S. international economic competitiveness uh, sees this. And I'd say the plan is fairly transparent. They want to be the global leader in high technology mm -hmm. uh, in the coming two decades, right. which is why they're pushing very aggressively to provide and control the telecommunications 5G. infrastructure of the right. future, which is what the debate over the 5G cellular networks are about. But, uh, of course, it's more than that. We know that they have been involved in a dedicated process over three decades to acquire by any means fair or foul everything from sending their graduate students over to learn mm -hmm. our high technologies of communication and digital infrastructure, satellites, drone technology, robotics, yep, they control gene drone, editing. They control robotics, they yeah. gene editing. They're, yeah. they're ahead on um, pretty much everything. Uh, well, artificial intelligence, yeah, they're not ahead on, no. on all of this, but they are taking the lead in some of this and drawing even in other parts of this. And one of the things that's so alarming mm -hmm. about the technological element of it is that they're plowing back all of these forms of technology into the People's Liberation Army mm -hmm. and a breathtaking pace of modernization and expansion of their military capacity. Right. Uh, and that has— Which I is think, where its most ambitious citizens go. Rather than to Silicon Valley, they, they're 
facilitating the army. I mean, they have— Well, it's certainly where some of them are right. going. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't think it's where all of the most ambitious go. A lot of the but really there, it's ambitious a tight, Chinese— But it's a tight relationship between the companies and the military yes. and the government. You know why? Because China is not a democracy. No, it's a, it's, I've heard. It is a deeply, deeply, and increasingly authoritarian country that now with the social credit system mm -hmm. and the expansion of the surveillance state mm -hmm. and the emergence of these concentration camps in Xinjiang province and so on, is taking on some really chilling neo-totalitarian properties. Mm -hmm. So if the state says to Alibaba or Tencent or whoever it might be, hand over your data, uh, they have no choice, Huawei or anyone. They have to hand it over. They may not be loving collaborators and compatriots of uh, the Chinese Communist Party state, but they certainly are reliable ones sure. uh, because they know that they can't exist if they aren't. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting, pretty much a homogeneous society, too, that allows that control. What I found really most interesting was how much money internal control how much money they're spending on internally controlling their citizens via digital technology, whether it's cameras everywhere, whether it's these concentration camps. You know, you can easily see it moving into chipping people, all kinds of stuff like that. It's a really, the amount of money for internal controls, most of which is technology, using technology, is really, it's a number. It's quite a number when you think about what it could be used for. Well, they haven't chipped people yet, but no, they're getting close saying, to it in, in other ways in terms of taking iris I, scans, iris scans yep. and, and collecting people's DNA. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you create a complete profile of a human being. You have their genetic information. You're mm -hmm. gathering their all their digital information. Right. You have supercomputers that are compiling a record of every financial transaction they've ever made. And, of course, you are collecting their political history of commentary on the Internet, and that's what the social credit system is. Sure. You mash this all up, and you can compute a score of political reliability that will enable you to determine how much you want to reward or punish people. So it's a full surveillance economy, essentially, I think. Uh, and then, you know, we don't even know where this is headed genetically, mm -hmm. but uh, they don't have the ethical constraints, uh, or at least there is worry among people who look at this that they don't have the ethical constraints yep. in gene editing that we do. And right. this is why there I say— There was just a controversy about that. It was a Chinese yes, doctor. Exactly. Uh, this is why I say China is the place where George Orwell meets Aldous Huxley. <laughs> That's really funny, but horrible at the same time. So what what happens with this? Where do you imagine it going? Because it, this, to me, the Russian thing feels like it will eventually be a traffic accident there in Russia. But in this case, it's quite organized and quite, except for the fact that they need to control their population, which is always not the greatest thing, because eventually you can't control populations. Where does this go to? And so let me... Let me uh, speculate on two places where mm -hmm. I think it's heading. One is internal and the other is external. The external is a kind of moment of truth in terms of China's bad behavior internationally. Mm -hmm. It's um, rising use of bullying sharp power uh, that is distinguished from the soft power that democracies have been exercising by the fact that it is to quote the former Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, covert, 
coercive or corrupting. The People's Republic of China has been, for some years now, penetrating deeply into universities, mm -hmm. think tanks, the entertainment industry, corporations, local government, and other sectors of advanced industrial democratic societies. With Australia and New Zealand, because of their proximity being, I think, the canaries in the coal mine. So one place where I think it's going, Kara, uh, is an awakening and a pushback by democratic societies. And although Trump has probably, I think, been too crude and too indiscriminate in his trade war, and I worry about some of the language uh, mm -hmm. and some of the mentality that his partisans are bringing to this because it can easily descend into McCarthyite uh, ethnic stereotyping right. and something very, very ugly and dangerous. I think there is a growing consensus on Capitol Hill across party lines, Democratic and Republican, that we need to respond to this and draw boundaries around China's uh, ambitious effort to extend its influence into all sorts of arenas of social, cultural, and economic control. And I, I think this awakening is going to balance the playing field a little bit more in the coming years. The more intriguing question is, where is it headed internally mm -hmm. in a country where most people uh, support Xi Jinping and think he's doing a great job? Uh, and are proud that China is finally awakening and breaking off the mental and cultural, if not uh, still economic and geopolitical chains of a century of humiliation that began uh, in the 19th century with uh, the, opium uh, the Opium War and, and the colonial presence and so on. It's all great while the merry-go-round keeps going round mm -hmm. of economic growth and simply dizzying transformation in the physical circumstances of people's lives. What happens when economic growth continues to slow as it's significantly doing now? Mm -hmm. Possibly um, the economic growth rate of about 6.5% mm -hmm. uh, annually that they've uh, announced uh, as being their growth rate might be overstated by as much as Two percentage points. What if there's a financial crisis because of all of the extraordinary corruption in the banking system and uh, in the state corporations and the lack of accountability there and so on? A lot of people think they've got enough money to see themselves through it. But, you know, there's a lot of vulnerability to there. Right. And if there is a crisis... Mm -hmm. Uh, economically or financially, and a lot of people lose their savings and the merry-go-round stops going around, people are going to start asking, what have you done for us lately? And if you can't continue to provide us with this uh, dizzying material prosperity, at least give us freedom and accountability. Right, right. That's what's going to happen. So both of them have problems, but at the same time are marching forward. When we get back, we're going to talk about American complacency and what Americans can do about this, including being competitive, being have competition, small businesses, which is the way we've won everything before. We're here with Larry Diamond. He's the author of Ill Wind, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. We'll be back after this. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. 
That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're here with Larry Diamond. He's a professor at Stanford uh, University, and he's a fellow at the Hoover Institution there. He also is the author of a new book called Ill Winds, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. Let's finish up talking about American complacency. On one hand, one of the ways that we have done well is by competition and being aware, being fully aware of, of creating small businesses in order to compete where the best ideas win. But we're complacent in our election security. We're complacent in the impact of social media and the on partisanship and our own mental states. We're being complacent on on moving forward on innovation and how to innovate into the next century. We have owned the technology century so far, perhaps not going forward. Well, let's start on the technological and economic fronts uh, since we've been talking about that with respect to the primary challenge we face mm -hmm. from the People's Republic of China. And then I really would like to get mm -hmm. to the political dimensions of this. You know, uh, a major report looking at China's technology transfer strategy, and that was the title of the report mm -hmm. from the Defense Innovation Unit yep. in yeah, yeah. Uh, January of 2018, came to the following conclusion. Yes, we need to tighten up restrictions on Chinese investment in the United States. We need much closer monitoring, a uh, much more vigilant approach. But we also need to up our game. That's the logic mm -hmm. of what you're saying. And upping our game, I think, Kara, has multiple dimensions to it. Promoting innovation in small businesses is part of it. And mm -hmm. then there's the question of how you do that when the two digital giants, Facebook and Google, mm -hmm. um, have so much um, uh, of the marketplace sure. now. But there's also the question of federal investment in mm -hmm. research and That's development. Right. China is pouring money into the technologies of the future. Mm -hmm. And our companies are, but our federal government is not. No. It used to be the case it's gone from that the United States... 30% um, to 2 or some It's some incredible amount of... Yeah, 3% of gross domestic product in the United States... Uh, in federal research and development spending. And now it's 0.7%. Right. It's some enormous um, dip. Uh, so we need to get back to um, uh, the defense report uh, suggests at least a federal investment level of 2% of GDP in research and development. And I'll give you a very specific example. We uh, have now realized that we've been caught napping in the race to build the telecommunications right. infrastructure of the future, the 5G um, uh, cellular communications platforms, and we are way behind. And I think that we're not going to catch up without a massive federal investment that involves a public-private partnership between government and a variety of corporations. And I think we need both the federal government to provide the funding for that in collaboration with private companies, and we may actually need to relax 
our rules on uh, monopoly practices in order to get corporations at the scale where they can do this rapidly enough. Mm -hmm. Which uh, we're going in the opposite direction on that, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, we have to be careful uh, because we could stifle uh, innovation uh, by going too far in that direction. But we're in an urgent situation where if we don't recognize the need, as we did in the immediate aftermath of World War II, as we did in the race to the moon that we're now celebrating 50 years later, if we don't recognize the need for a concerted scientific and technological government investment now in partnership with our private uh, entrepreneurial instincts, um, we're going to fall further and further behind. Mm -hmm. Some feel that they are too big and, and that they're too... Th their argument is we need to be big in order to fight. And a lot of other people's argument is you were this big and you made this mess. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? It's sort of a two-edged, double-edged sword in that it is a It is a agonizing mm -hmm. double-edged sword. But I will just say now, we're not going to get there rapidly enough without... Um, powerful uh, internet companies, powerful tech companies. Yeah, and, and also the technological companies, probably like Qualcomm and so on, mm -hmm. that are our only bets on the 5G front. On the politics side, let me say that part of the complacency is just kind of sleepwalking into the future with our current models and not asking whether they're working any longer. What is the magic of the two-party system at this point when the two political parties have brought us to this polarizing uh, impasse of complete incapacity to pass legislation? We are just increasingly trapped in our foxholes on mm -hmm. Capitol Hill. And I think this is what you get with the first-past-the-post electoral system, where everybody is elected from a single-member district, and then whoever gets the most votes wins. If it's simple first-past-the-post, whoever gets the most votes wins, you're not going to be able to exit from the polarizing trap of our two-party duopoly because one or the two of the other two parties is going to get the most votes almost everywhere because people are going to be afraid to mm -hmm. vote for any kind of innovative third alternative because they will be fearful that they are wasting their vote. That's right. Uh, and we're so polarized that you fear, my God, if right. you waste your vote. I'll take uh, Biden because. Yes. If you waste your vote. Not because he's bad, Then you'll perhaps, be yeah. helping to elect, yep, you yep, know, the yep. really monstrous alternative. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, this interacts with what's happened in our primary elect election system where the people who turn out in our party primaries are the ones who are most intensely ideologically motivated. Right. And that is what is driving the two political parties increasingly further and further toward the ideologically defined positions, if you will, the ideological extremes. This is why I put so much emphasis in my book. It's mm -hmm. the single most important America-centered recommendation in my book on ranked choice voting. If you have enabled voters uh, in single-member districts still to rank their choices one, two, three, four, they are liberated from this trap of thinking, one or two. I can't vote for a spoiler. Right. Um, 
they now they can vote their sincere preference. <laughs> it might be some moderate independent who's <laughs> offering a third way between the two extremes. It might be a libertarian, a green candidate, you know, <laughs> a candidate who wants to colonize the planet Mars, you know. <laughs> I don't care. I want to enable them to have a voice and have people be able to listen to them and not feel like they're wasting their vote mm -hmm. if they want to say, that's actually my first preference. If they don't make it and nobody gets a majority of first place votes, then we'll have an instant runoff mm -hmm. and my vote will be transferred to my second choice. Right. And if nobody— Which we did in San Francisco. Yeah, which is the way— um, mm -hmm. A London Breed was elected mayor of yep. San Francisco, and which is used in Oakland, in Berkeley, in Minneapolis, in St. Paul, in Portland, Maine. Uh, it will be used in Santa Fe, and it's being used in an increasing number of American cities. And part of the, I think, hopeful story in my book is the way America is seeing a revitalization of grassroots politics around the cause of political reform. So we had in 2018, Maine become the first state in the United States to adopt ranked choice voting. Mm -hmm. We've seen a number of voter initiatives to eliminate partisan gerrymandering of election districts, which is really a gross offense against Democratic Well, they principles. have to cheat. They'll yeah. cheat until they can't cheat. Well, and then you'll have the... Uh, the person uh, who drew the district boundaries, like the uh, uh, Senate majority leader in uh, North Carolina, walk out of the gerrymandering exercise and say, which he did, the only reason why we drew a redistricting plan mm -hmm. to give the Republicans 10 of the 13 congressional seats mm -hmm. in North Carolina is because we couldn't figure out a way to draw a plan to give us an 11th seat. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they're not even being apologetic no, no, overt about is it. The new is the new corruption, just so you know. <laughs> we had Florida mm -hmm. uh, in 2018 uh, vote to give felons mm -hmm. uh, the right to vote, to uh, nonviolent mm -hmm. uh, convicted felons. We've got more and more states moving to uh, mail-in ballots mm -hmm. as the uh, default option. Uh, so that people have the freedom to vote whenever Whatever we they want. want to. Do you have great hopes for digital voting on your phones and things like that? No, I think it's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And for now, I think we need to be very wary about it uh, because um, of the danger of hacking. Right, you right. Know? Well, there's two parts. You, 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 a lot of this, I'm going up to Microsoft this week uh, tomorrow to see their new voting system, which is encrypted and paper ballot, to a backup paper ballot, which creates— That's the key, right. okay? If you follow the logic of election security experts and mm -hmm. an organization that I work with, Verified Voting, mm -hmm. you have to start from certain first principles. And one of them is there should never be an election of consequence in the United States that cannot be audited right. and recounted. That's right. And you can't do that unless you have a a trail of paper ballots. Right, absolutely, both of them at the same time. All right, let's finish up. What do you think the key thing to push uh, American complacency out of it? What has to happen? Well, I think uh, a few things. Number one, uh, in terms of the reforms we need, uh, I think that we've got to push now on a number of state fronts for ranked choice voting. Mm -hmm. Massachusetts is going to put 
uh, a voter initiative on the ballot probably in 2020 to do this. There's interest growing, I think, in other states in the United States to move to ranked choice voting at the state level. So federally. We, we've got a federal action I think we're not going to get because to get it through both houses of the Congress, I think, is a long stretch now. But let's do what we did in the progressive era in the early 20th century mm -hmm. and start getting momentum at the state level through grassroots action. Right. And eventually that can accumulate into pressure on the federal government. I think we've got to drive a, a stake through the heart of gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court, unfortunately, abandoned what I felt it was is constitutional imperative mm -hmm. to do this and said, look, if you're going to do it, you're going to have to do it politically uh, in the states. But we've done it in some states. We need to do it in more. We need to empower voting in the United States and expand it. And we need to fight what is, I think, the most uh, cynical dimension of the era of zero-sum politics and defection from democratic norms that we have entered, which is voter suppression, which one party is doing in a number of different states and jurisdictions with all sorts of rationalizations that they offer about mm -hmm. efficiency and costs and cheating and so on, but which they know in their hearts and probably in their private deliberations, and we can know from their actions, has the explicit and probably sole purpose of preventing minority voters from voting. And I don't want to allow a situation in the United States where so many people marched and lost their lives in the American South to finally get to a full democracy in the United States where everybody could have the right to vote, only to retreat to the pre-1965 yep. era. They'll keep trying. Right? I'm afraid so. What is the one thing, and we've got to go, that technology people can do from your perspective? You're right in the heart of technology. I think they've got to moderate and vet content much more aggressively uh, to try and find ways of transcending polarization and uh, diminishing the scope for Russia or any other malevolent actor to poison our social media atmosphere. All right, Larry, this is big thinking. Thank you so much. Thank I you, Kara. I totally Cara. recommend this book. It's a terrific book called Ill Wind, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. Please read it. It's a really important book to think about. And thank you for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you would share it with a friend. Where can people find you, Larry? On Twitter at um, Larry Diamond. Mm -hmm. uh, they can certainly email me if they want. <laughs> That's okay. Well, I'll find you on Twitter and then yeah. you can get with them. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. 